So the last few weeks, if you've been tracking with us, we've been looking at different events that led up to Jesus' death. We, we first looked at Jesus entering Jerusalem, and he's lauded as the long-awaited Messiah King, and rightfully so. And then the week after, we saw the same Messiah King agonizing in the garden because he knew what lay ahead. And then we saw that he decided to take that cup of God's wrath that I deserve, that you deserve for our sin. And he went through. He got up and he went to go meet his betrayer. Then he was tried, he was, he was uh, betrayed, he was arrested. And then he was led to his crucifixion. And just a couple of days ago, Friday, we pondered the cross that Jesus took on the sin of all those who believe. And consequently, God the Father was pleased to crush him, it says in Isaiah 53. That he was forsaken and he took on God's wrath. And then he died and then he was buried. And that leads us here to today. And if you've been with us, like I said, you have probably heard of me saying the last few weeks or noticed that I've been frequently referring to Jesus as king. Because he is king. And so I've been pointing out that Jesus is king, the long-awaited Messiah king. We don't follow some wimp. We don't follow and worship uh, a, a dead man. We follow King Jesus, who is victorious. As we see today, he's victorious. He conquered even death. Many of you, uh, maybe the last couple of days, but maybe in the past, have seen the movie, uh, or Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I love the ending where you see the risen king in the tomb and he's kneeling. And you see him, his eyes open, he looks up, then he closes his eyes, then as he opens it, drums start beating. He looks forward, he's got this determined face, look on his face. He stands up and you see the holes in his hands from the nails and then he takes a step and then the scene cuts. And what we see there is that Jesus isn't done. He was victorious. But then he goes. He takes that step. He he reigns and he rules. And so this isn't a dead man that we worship, but a, a resurrected King Jesus, the God-man. He's the king who reigns even today. Whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we sense it or not, he reigns today. Jesus conquered. And he's not done. He goes. And so Jesus' resurrection that we see today it's an announcement of victory, and it's a call to action. Let me say that again. It's an announcement of victory. Jesus is victorious. He is one. And it's also a call to action, a call to action for his subjects, you and I. And that's exactly what we see in our passage today that Seth read for us. We're going to break it down into three sections. Number one is the message of victory. Number two is the opposition. And number three is the mission. The message of victory, the opposition, and then the mission. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Matthew chapter 28, if you have not already. Matthew 28. And then, as I said, the first section we see here is the message of victory. Picking up in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the lord descended from heaven 
and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So it starts, right? He says it's after the Sabbath and Sabbath is Saturday. So this is Sunday, Sunday morning. John, in his account, he records it's still dark. They get out there early, so it's still dark. Let me make a quick note here. If you're wondering, like me, you try to notice the small things. If you're wondering how this is three days since Jesus died, since he died late afternoon Friday, like, okay, how is this the third day? Keep in mind this, that the Jews, any reference to a day, they count as a day. So Friday afternoon, Friday evening after Jesus died, that's day one. Saturday, day two. Sunday morning, that's day three. And so we get three days, exactly what Jesus has been saying for a long time. Three days and I'll rise. I'll be risen. And Matthew records, as you see here, the two Marys that go to the tomb. Mark and Luke, they describe other women as well. But Matthew, he focuses on these two ladies. And it's clear, there's two things clear about the ladies. Number one, they're still devoted. As we picked up from last, uh, from Friday, that they're devoted. They were there when they crucified Christ and they went to go minister to Jesus' body one more time. We do see that they lacked faith, that they didn't believe that he was risen, but they were going there to, 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 with the spices, the anointing spices. But look at this. What happens? A great earthquake. Second time in a matter of days near Jerusalem, there was a great earthquake. And as we said Friday, it's a, a, a declaration from God. There was a great earthquake. And it says, an angel from the Lord came and rolled back the stone. Not to let Jesus out. He's already gone. But to let the Marys, the woman, in. In his appearance, the angel is described with lightning and a white like snow. A picture of God's power, his purity, and his holiness. From whose presence the angel has just descended from. And seeing this, Matthew records the Roman soldiers... They trembled and became like dead men. And that word trembled is the same root of the earthquake. And so they shook, just as the earthquake, they shook physically and mentally to the point that they were terrified and traumatized, that they felt unconscious. It is no small deal when an angel from the Lord comes and appears to you. All throughout scripture, there's people who are scared they're dying, Isaiah, who's in front of God, uh, you think of all the other, they tremble that this is not normal. This is not, I am, un, I am unholy. And so when an angel appears, it is not any kind of normal event. And then we see that exactly here. And the women also were afraid. But the angel says, verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. I, see, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And so the angel comforts, comforts the women because this is an extraordinary event. They see an angel from God. They're afraid. He says, do not be afraid. And he comforts them. And then he gives them the message of victory. That Jesus is not here because he has risen. And notice he, the angel says, as he said. This is exactly what Jesus has been saying 
for days leading up to this. He said, he said this multiple times to the disciples that this was going to happen. And it happened exactly as he says. The angel invites them to come see. Come, see where Jesus was laid. He's not there anymore. The other New Testament accounts, they record other exchanges going on. They record other angels there as well. But Matthew, he focuses on this one exchange. He focuses on the message of victory that the angel sends. And also notice this. Notice God's mercy and grace to the disciples. God could have let the disciples sit in their anxiety and fear for another week. Because they abandoned Jesus. But that's not what he does. He tells the angel, tells the woman to go tell the disciples they're not sending, he's not sending along a message of condemnation for the, the disciples' failure. Rather, it's a message of victory, of comfort, of hope. Tell the disciples, he says to the woman, tell them that Jesus is risen. And listen to the description of their departure. They quickly departed with fear and great joy. Fear, very understandably, they have a, a remnant or a trace of fear still that they were in the presence of an angel and then they left it with great joy. Joy at the message of victory that King Jesus has conquered even death. And then verse 9, King Jesus himself appears to them. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they'll see me. And so they see the risen king. Now there's no doubt that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he is God, he's the, he's the long-awaited Messiah, he's the God-man, and they worship him. This is the first time, and we'll see it again, that they worship Jesus. And he repeats, Jesus repeats exactly what the angel said, do not be afraid. And Jesus, again, the mercy and grace of God, he refers to the disciples who abandoned him, Peter who denied him, as my brothers. Go. Tell my brothers. And so there's the message of victory. King Jesus is risen. That's what we, we celebrate today. That's what we celebrate every day. Every Sunday we celebrate that Jesus has risen. We do not worship a dead man. We worship the King Jesus. Why is, why is this significant? Let me give you six reasons. Very quick here. And this is not all, all of them but just a little list here. Number one, Jesus' resurrection ensures our justification. Jesus' resurrection ensures our justification. Romans 4.25 tells us that Jesus was raised for our justification. What does that mean to you and me? That means through faith in Jesus, his resurrection ensures that we are justified before God, that we are made completely right, that we are forgiven, that our sins have been reconciled, there's nothing laid against us. There's no charge against us. It's complete. Our salvation is complete. Jesus' resurrection ensures that. So even when we have these thoughts to come after us that reminds us and tries to beat us down, Jesus' resurrection has put an end to that. Through faith in him, we are completely justified. Number two, Jesus' resurrection gives evidence that the Bible is God's word and it is true. The fact that Jesus is risen validates all that he says is true. And what he referenced, the Bible, over and over, is also true. 
It gives us a foundation. The Bible is the very words of your creator. Number three, Jesus' resurrection points to the truth that he's not dead, that he rose again, that he ascended, and right now he's at the right hand of the Father. And so you, Christian, it says that he's interceding for you. In Romans, he's interceding for you. First John, he tells us he's your advocate. He's, he's at your advocate for you. Number four, Jesus' resurrection secures the resurrection of believers in the end. There is hope. There's life after death in Jesus, faith in Christ. Number five, Jesus' resurrection, with it in mind that there's hope after life, that there's, resur- there's the resurrection of believers, it gives us reason to stand firm and to labor for the Lord. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is probably one of the greatest chapters on the resurrection. At the end of it all, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Jesus' resurrection ensures that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. It gives you purpose to your service. And the last point I want to bring up here, number six, Jesus' resurrection points to the judgment that is coming. You and I will stand before Christ. He'll either be our Savior or our Judge. But He is King always. King Jesus has risen. That's the message of victory we see in the first part. Number two, that brings us to the second section we see, and that's the opposition. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Hey, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole them away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of, out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And so Friday I described this Roman guard, right? About 12 to 16 Roman soldiers uh, who took shifts during the night, some staying, asleep, some staying awake, keeping watch while the other ones went to bed. And remember, if the soldiers failed, they were going to be executed. And they knew that. So the angel comes, as we read here, and they become like dead men. They become unconscious. They become paralyzed by fear. But then it's written here by Matthew that as the women went to go tell the disciples, the Roman guards, they went to the high priest, the, the chief priest, to the, the Jewish leaders. And they told the chief priest what happened. And look at this. It does not lead to repentance. They're literally told, yep, there was an angel. woman came. Jesus' body wasn't there. And this does not lead them to repentance. Rather, they concocted a lie. They told the soldiers, hey, tell people that the disciples came and stole the body while you guys were asleep. And they paid off the soldiers. And then the religious leaders affirmed or, or at least give ease to the soldiers who were probably anxious because since they failed, they literally should be executed. And the religious leaders say, hey, don't worry. If this comes to the governor, we'll make sure everything's okay. And so they take the money and they go. Now, as many have asked, this story that they, they, they create has so many holes in it. Number one is this. They could have found the stolen body. 
They could have found the stone body. They had hundreds of men under their authority. They had the Roman authority. They had Roman soldiers. It would have been very easy to go and get the body from the, the, the disciples. But there's no record of this. Another hole, number two, is the disciples' mindset. These men totally ditched Jesus and ran from him. One denied him. They left. And this was before Jesus was crucified. Now he is crucified. And you're telling me that they're going to go and, and risk their lives for a lie they know of that even beforehand they didn't? That doesn't make any sense. Number three, it is completely implausible that the soldiers fell asleep. Remember, there's four shifts in the night and there's at least three soldiers during that shift that stayed away. It's not very hard to stay awake for three hours, especially that you knew if you didn't, you died. And so it made no sense, especially if they had to move a stone that was huge, they would be definitely be making noise. Lastly, the thing I want to say about that is that if the, if the soldiers were asleep, how do they know who stole the body? And if someone told them, why didn't they go run after them and get the body rather than telling the chief priest and be risking their lives that they failed? So the story they, the, the chief priest created had so many holes in it. And as Matthew says here, this story in his day, as he writes, is still well-believed among the Jews. And it's funny because that story is still well-believed among the Jews as well as Gentiles and non-believers today. And there are many resurrection conspiracy theories. There's the swoon theory. There's the no burial theory. There's the hallucination theory. There's the telepathy theory. There's the seance theory. There's the mistaken identity theory. On and on and on. And they're all fall apart underneath scrutiny just like the, the story concocted by the chief priests. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that each believer creates this kind of story, this kind of justification or reason not to submit to Christ in repentance and faith. He says in Romans 1, For his, being God, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So why do I bring this up? Because there is real opposition to the truth in this world. There is real opposition that would love to take your kids and turn them from Christ. There's real opposition in the world that would love to feed you lies where you turn to away from Christ or at least become passive and be distracted. And there's real opposition in the present world against Christ. We see that in this passage here. There's opposition. But let me be clear. The opposition is not people. The opposition is not people. They are the ones we're trying to rescue. The opposition are the satanic lies. The satanic lies, these false stories. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 10. He writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your, dis when your obedience is complete. So Christianity, following Christ, is not about emotions. It is not some sappy sense. 
Paul and everyone else in the text makes it very clear it is a battle. There is opposition. Listen to Paul's language. Weapons, warfare, destroy strongholds, destroy arguments, take every thought captive to obey Christ. So as Christians, we take on this opposition. There's opposition. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, the weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So true spiritual warfare is defeating satanic lies with the truth. We are not instructed to attack demons or Satan himself. We're not. But rather, we're, we're instructed to defeat truth. Or I'm sorry, to defeat error with truth. As one pastor says, we attack thoughts, ideas, reasonings, philosophies, and false religions that are like ideological forts in which men barricade themselves against God and the gospel. We fight with the truth tearing down these fortresses of human and satanic wisdom and rescue those inside from the damning lies that are enslaving them. So what is this war over? The very souls of your kids. The souls of your grandkids. The souls of the friends you know, the co-workers you know who are lost. I can think of family members that I know that this war is over. The souls of family members you know who are lost. This is what the war is over. And you know it's real. The battle is very real. There's so much temptation to be passive. There's so much temptation not to submit to your husband. There's so much temptation not to, to, to listen and obey your, your parents. There's so much temptation to not do what's right. So let me ask you, are you in the battle or are you in the sidelines? Have you become distracted with the war zone we're in and have lost sight of what we're doing. Because Jesus makes it very clear, Matthew here, as well as Paul through the New Testament and the other writers, that we are in a war. And the thing is that King Jesus is victorious. And so from this place of victory that we have in Christ, we fight. And for the sake of the souls of those I love and the sake of the souls that you love and know. So we have the message of victory. Jesus is risen. And then we see that there's real opposition there's opposition against this message. And that brings us to the last part, which is the mission. So verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus, I'm sorry, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's the second time we see this. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so there it is. We're described our mission here. And there's so much here. But let me just describe a few things. Number one, the 11, it says. No longer the 12. That's been repeated over and over and over. Now it's the 11. Judas is no more. And it says that King Jesus is there and they worship him. Our mission is based and founded on worshiping Jesus. We follow Jesus. He is God. And then Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is king. And there it is. He has authority. He has authority over you, over me, over all those who don't acknowledge him, over unbelievers, over the kings of the earth. He has all authority. And then so from this foundation of worshiping Jesus, 
from this foundation of the reality that right now Jesus reigns, we're told our mission. He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So our, our, our mission is to make disciples by baptizing them, meaning they have professed faith in Christ, and to teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. That means we're proclaiming the gospel. We're making it known that Jesus is king and he reigns and judgment is coming. But there's an escape. You can flee to the cross for mercy because Jesus has died and has risen. And we can find forgiveness in him. We preach and proclaim the gospel. And this also means that we teach them to obey. This isn't a drive-by. We're teaching people to obey. We teach them what Jesus has said. We teach them to obey. And so this is our mission. And if you see here, this is a, a global conquest. Jesus says to make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. We conquer the entire world by making disciples everywhere across the world. And please listen to this. This great commission begins in your home. This great commission for the whole world begins in your home. And so, man, that means your mission is to accomplish the Great Commission in your homes. You need to be preaching the gospel. You need to be preaching the word to your wife, to your kids. You need to be teaching what it means to be a follower of Christ. Walk them through the Bible. And please, the, the elders are here to equip you to do just that. So please reach out to, to me, one of the elders, on how to do that more practical. A woman, you have a mission to help your husbands in accomplishing this mission in your homes. Encouraging, supporting, even when he fails. Uh, singles, the mission is the same. Make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey. And so that's that's the massive mission we have ahead by the king. And to not be overwhelmed, Jesus puts in there at the end, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The king is with you. So there it is, the resurrection of Christ, the announcement of victory, and the call to action. Jesus has risen. He is king. He is no wimp. He is no crutch. He's the reigning king. He is victorious. And he calls you to mission, a global conquest. Fan out and make disciples, first in your home. And there will be opposition. It is a battle. It is not easy. And we all can definitely acknowledge and, and share stories about that. And I want to end with this. This is from the, the Nicene Creed, a statement of faith. It reads this, The third day he, being Jesus, rose according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven, and is seated on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. So there's King Jesus. Repent. And flee to the cross for mercy and salvation. Please pray with me. Lord, help us, God, as we as we hear this of Jesus as King. Lord, help us, God, to follow you. Lord, help us. And God, help us with this mission. Give us grace and wisdom to fulfill this mission in our homes in our workplaces. Lord, may we walk out confident 
knowing that you have risen and that you are Lord and that you reign. Amen.